Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Pure evil. That is the way that not one but two men have been described. What else do they have in common? Well, allegedly, many, many dead bodies. I'm talking about, of course, Ted Bundy, who immediately springs to mind whenever uh, a serial killer or pure evil is named. But now, according to many parallels between Ted Bundy who was called the Kai Omega Killer, but he actually killed many, many more women than those murdered in the Kai Omega house. Many parallels are being drawn between Ted Bundy and Brian Koberger, now accused of murdering four beautiful young Idaho students, we believe, in their sleep. In their sleep, or falling asleep, or in bed in the early, early morning hours around 3 a.m. When Ted Bundy was finally caught, after two escapes, by the way, and convicted and put in the penitentiary, many people thought it would never happen again. Wow, were we wrong. I'm Nancy Grace. This is Crime Stories. Thank you for being with us here at Fox Nation and Sirius XM 111. Take a listen to Parallels of Evil, the Bundy in Idaho killing. I can only imagine what was going through his mind, the plotting, the planning, the scheming. It's very evocative of the Ted Bundy case because we know now that those victims were spied on and stalked upon, just like these victims. There's really no doubt about it. The comparisons and the parallels between the MO's modus operandi method of operation between Bundy killings and the Idaho murders are eerie. Actually, very eerie in their similarities. Take a listen to who I now consider to be my friend, Cheryl Thomas. When you read the headlines out of Idaho, what did you think? 
I was really saddened to hear about the news that that happened. And that news brings Cheryl Thomas. Did then and there unlawfully attempt to kill a human being to which Cheryl Thomas by beating her about the head. Back to the darkest moments of her life, the night she was attacked in her own bed by serial killer Ted Bundy. I could relate. It was a click immediately reaction to that scene. Take a listen now to the neighbor of Cheryl Thomas who was attacked that night by Ted Bundy. This is Debbie Citrelli. We had been sound asleep. We'd come in that night from being out together and um, I had heard this. Our house was up on blocks and I heard this loud banging and it startled me. I woke up and I listened for a little bit and then woke my roommate up and I said, there's something going on next door and the thing is the wall between Cheryl's side and our side was so thin that we could actually talk to each other through the wall and we had a system that if there's something we're not feeling right about we're going to call you you need to answer your phone no matter what well I called over there I could hear the phone ringing I could hear Cheryl whimpering um it, but I just had this real unsettling feeling sick to my stomach um, I had no idea what was going on. We thought maybe our cat was having kittens and there was all this commotion in Cheryl's room for that. With me, an all-star panel to analyze and decipher what we are learning as more and more evidence comes in about the Idaho murders. But first, I want to go to Fox News digital investigative reporter Audrey Conklin. Now, just then, Audrey, from our friends at News Nation, we were hearing Debbie Citarelli. And it sounds so much like what Dylan Mortensen said, that she heard something and she wasn't quite sure what it sounded like. Now, here, Debbie says it sound, thought she heard a cat mewing. But what she heard were Bundy's victims moaning during and after the attack, Audrey. Yes, I mean, we've heard similarities from the murders in Moscow that screaming or other kinds of noises, banging could be heard through the walls. Um, we know that there was a dog in the building. It's unsure if the dog made any noise. Um, but both of these communities in the 1970s and then last fall were close-knit college communities, close in um their relationships and close in proximity. So there are a lot of similarities between um, these these two crimes. To Joseph Scott Morgan, professor of forensics at Jacksonville State University, author of Blood Beneath My Feet and host of Body Bags with Joe Scott Morgan, who, by the way, is commemorating the 100th episode of Body Bags this week. Amazingly, congratulations on that, Joe Scott Morgan, all the good you have done in this world. Uh, Joe Scott, the words of Dylan Mortensen just keep coming to mind. What we know of her words, anyway. Guys, Dylan Mortensen is one of the two surviving roommates. Dylan Mortensen, we believe, actually saw the murderer who had just slain four sleeping or sleepy college students in Idaho and described him good for her she went back in her room and shut her door and locked it not realizing I don't think anyway what she had actually seen or what had actually happened upstairs but then you've got Bethany Funk also uh, we don't know what she's going to say who may very well have slept through the whole thing 
but remember the words of Dylan Mortensen and how that compares to what Debbie Citrelli heard? It's it's almost identical. It is, and uh, thanks for having me on t today, Nancy. Uh, it, yeah, it, it it really is, and in such close proximity to evil, and it is pure evil. You know, when we begin to, and as you've talked about these parallels relative between Bundy and Koberger and these events that have gone down, and you have people that are, you know, just in the eye of the storm. They just, they just get brushed by it, but they've wreaked havoc uh, in their wake, these monsters along the way. And these people are all that are left behind to bear witness to this, at least potentially as an ear witness or an eyewitness. In Dylan's case in particular, you know, she's she's actually the person that we get that identifier, that big identifier. Do you remember back those months ago where she talked about the bushy eyebrows? You know, and that was the one thing that kind of resonated uh, in this particular case. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here. Please join us now on Fox Nation for a brand new investigation, Parallels of Evil, the Bundy and Idaho Killings. In this gripping special investigation, we bring together an incredible panel of guests who analyze disturbing similarities of evil between these horrible crimes. We speak with two female Ted Bundy survivors, Karen Pryor and Cheryl Thomas, who describe their life before and after they were victims of Ted Bundy. We also speak with the renowned private investigator, Bill Warner, who worked the cases, and Ted Bundy's defense attorney, John Henry Brown. We travel to Moscow, Idaho, to speak with Washington State University students and interview neighbors of Brian Koberger. One neighbor shares exclusive insights about the suspect in the Idaho killings, Brian Koberger. Don't miss Parallels of Evil, the Bundy and Idaho killings, streaming now exclusively on Fox Nation. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. You know, I was just thinking, uh, I want to go to John Henry Brown. Guys, I know you've heard that name before. He is a renowned lawyer and was Ted Bundy's former defense lawyer. That must give you nightmares at night. You can find John Henry Brown at JHB, for John Henry Brown, lawyer.com. John, thank you for being with us. John, do you go by John or Henry or John Henry? Oh, either one's fine. I'm, I answer a lot of things. So I'm going to go with John. Um, okay. John, I'm thinking about all the literally thousands of criminal defendants that went before me as a prosecutor in inner city Atlanta. Very, very high crime volume. I mean, I would get 150 new felony cases a week. And many of those were... It sounds like a lot. Many of those were theft by taking, theft by receiving a stolen car, cop pulls over a stolen car, and there's four guys in it. They all get charged. All right. That's easy to deal with unless they're, you know, have a bad record. Or a simple possession of marijuana or cocaine, you know, straight to rehab for you and next. There's so many cases that are easily disposed of. But 
there are those, John Henry Brown, that when the person walks in the room, the particular judge I had would want me to meet with a defense attorney and bring in the defendant in the conference room. He could be charged with mass murder, serial rapist, didn't matter. And we would go through the case and I would explain what the state had at that juncture against them and offer a plea deal or just say, no deal, you're going to trial, you big a-hole. So long story short, there were those defendants that when they would walk in and then walk out later, you just had the creepiest feeling about them. Did you ever have that feeling about Bundy? Oh, yeah, constantly. Oh, gosh. Okay. I, ne- I didn't know if you were going to go to your grave going, he's innocent. <laughs> but, but that said, okay, I want to no. hear about the creepy feeling. Are you listening, Dr. Bethany Marshall? Okay, you're not going to find any of this in your psychoanalytic books. This is true. Okay, John Henry Brown, I want to hear about the feeling. Well, when I first met him, he came across as kind of a caricature of a, a preppy sort of guy. What really got creepy was he was out of custody um, after he'd been released in Utah. Oh, my stars. Wait, 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 wait. That's right. He was out of custody. Free right. to continue and, killing people. And you said he was like a caricature of a preppy person. What do you mean by that? Oh, you know, he was he was trying to blend in with the uh, uh, Republican uh, folks in Washington. We had a really great governor back then. Dan Evans was our governor, and, and I ended up working for Dan. That's how I got to Ted, is that somebody in Dan's staff recommended me to Ted. The really creepy thing started happening when you know, I'd meet with him on Saturday, and then the next Wednesday, he'd show up and be wearing, like, the exact same clothes I was wearing. And he'd ask me where I get my clothes, where I get my shoes, what kind of car I drove, what kind of women I have. Okay, wait, wait, there's just, wait. John Henry, you're telling me so much. To the rest of the panel, please soak this in, okay, because I've got I've to ferret this out. Wait. So he'd ask you, where, where did you get that jacket? Where did you get that shirt? What car do you drive? What women do you date? I, I find that interesting. He just throws the women in like you can buy one at the mall. Where'd you get that shirt? Who? Where'd you get that date? Where'd she come from? Okay, that's a whole nother can of worms. But then he'd show up wearing like the same outfit, essentially, that you were wearing? Right, and then one of the creepiest, I don't know if you know, but I wrote a book. Wait, wait, wait no, I did not know about your book. What is the name of your book? It's called The Devil's Defender. The Devil's Defender. Is that on Amazon? Oh, yeah, actually, Amazon editors voted it the best nonfiction book of that year. But um, Best what book? Best nonfiction of that year. The Devil's Defender. Oh, okay. I know what I'm going to do on vacation. I'm reading The Devil's Defender. <laughs> so, um, one of the creepiest things in the whole Bundy adventure was he told me in Tallahassee in the jail there when I I'd secured a plea bargain for Chad. I don't know. A lot of people don't know that. But I secured a plea bargain to save his life. And and one of those meetings in the jail in Tallahassee, he, I'm walking out of the jail cell. I, they gave me free access to him. And he said, the reason you've been my advisor so long and attorney at times is because we're so much alike. I bet that made you feel good. No, I think I remember looking in the mirror in this cheap hotel in Tallahassee and saying, you know, why are you doing this? This is, you don't want to be around this kind of evil. I, I never believed people could be born evil until I met Ted. So my 
attitude about that changed um, dramatically. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Do you think he's haunted you? I don't think so. I was ready for a good ghost story right now, and then you just blew it. Thank you. <laughs> no, I think you and I have some similarities that when I in 1971 in Washington, D.C., when I was in law school, my girlfriend was in Berkeley going to graduate school, and she was murdered. So I have this kind of a dual role of a zealous criminal defense attorney and at the same time being the victim of a homicide. She was in Berkeley and I didn't, of course, didn't think it had anything to do with it. I could never live with myself. But he did tell me later on in communications that he was active in California as well as seven or eight other states. And if I could jump to something that I think is kind of interesting between... Please do. Between he and Kohlberger is... um, Kohlberger goes from a state, Washington where there's no death penalty and an insanity defense to a state 10 miles away where there's no insanity defense and there's a death penalty. When Ted escaped the first time in Aspen, I flew when he got arrested and went to him in the Pitkin County Jail in Aspen. And uh, the Pitkin County Courthouse, have you been there, Nancy? Yes, and not only have I been there, I have interviewed a sheriff, a rookie sheriff, that transported Bundy. What a story I was told. Yeah, I visited him a couple of days. That's after his first escape. Anyway, so I go down to the holding cell in the basement, which is the old-fashioned kind with the flat bars. Ted's sleeping on the floor, and one of the guards kicks the gate, says, you got a visitor, Bundy, and then Ted wakes up, looks at me, and he goes, John, did you figure out which one of those guys pushed me out of the window? <laughs> After his escape, for those of you that don't know, Bundy escaped out of an upstairs window in the courthouse. I believe it was the law library, wasn't it, John Henry? Yes. During that meeting with him or one of those meetings over the few days, we I, I advised him to waive extradition from Utah, where they kill people in, all the time in death penalty cases, to go to Colorado because I thought the Colorado death penalty statute was probably unconstitutional. So... I told him that, and uh, Ted asked me, he said, well, John, where would I go if I really wanted to get the death penalty? And you know what I said? Texas or Florida? Florida or Texas. And then he escapes the second time and goes through a number of states and ends up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, which did not have the death penalty at that point. And he's watching the Rose Bowl, and uh, there's a little ticker tape on the bottom, Ted Bundy escapes. He's already been gone for uh, a day and a half. But he goes from state to state where there's uh, insanity defenses and uh, no death penalty and goes to a small college town in Florida. And so Kohlberger goes from Washington State where there's really no death penalty and there's uh, active insanity defense to a state where there's no defense, insanity defense and they have the death penalty. Well, and hey, don't rush through your stories. What you're telling us are things many people don't know, have never known. So, Dale Carson with me, uh, high-profile lawyer out of Jacksonville, former Fed with the FBI, instructor at the FBI Academy, who taught the case of Ted Bundy, and author of Arrest Proof Yourself. You can find him at DaleCarsonLaw.com. Dale, what about that? I've never heard that story where John Henry Brown walks in, they wake Bundy up and he goes, hey, who pushed me through that library window? He had tried, he escaped. I mean, the, right, the anecdotal 
stories that emanate out of people like this is pretty incredible, really. And I, it, it surprises me some that, you know, these attacks, both the Kyle Mega House and, and in Idaho, you know, were done basically at the same time, not the same day. Bundy's was done on a Tuesday. And people don't realize that the Bureau and other agencies at that time set out uh, investigators, police officers, who identified everybody in field interrogations that were wandering around Tallahassee during that period of time, you know, from 10 p.m. until 5 a.m. And we found that roughly 60% of the people who were walking around in Tallahassee back in 74 were convicted criminals. So that was something that my takeaway from that all was that people who wander around in the middle of the night, even in a college town, really are causing trouble and looking for trouble. And certainly that was Bundy, you know, who went in as an anger excitation rapist and killed two girls and, and injured severely some others. I mean, it's similar to what Koberger did in terms of his anger excitation, which, of course, we recognize now he was able to slaughter five people. It's horrible. There were four victims in Idaho, not five. Yeah, yeah. You know, I want to go to Dr. Bethany Marshall and then Bill Warner joining us. Dr. Bethany Marshall joining us, psychoanalyst out of Beverly Hills at drbethanymarshall.com. Dr. Bethany, hearing John Henry Brown speaking about Ted Bundy, it reinforces what we have been told about Bundy, that he could be charming and witty and funny and blend in. So these women meeting him were immediately put at ease. He was really good at it. Of course, Nancy. And this is how we learn about sociopaths. It's not from reading out of a textbook or looking at the research or even walking through a jail. It's through hearing stories from people like John where he has this up-close and personal experience like we're going to have with Koberger in the upcoming trial. And the clothing aspect is so fascinating to me. Um, I could pick apart all these details, but I'll, I'll just pick up on a couple of them. One detail is the clothing. He wanted to dress like John. He wanted to charm and impress John. And I'm thinking about... Um, a male sociopath who came to my office in Beverly Hills who was about to be indicted for this uh, multi-level marketing scheme where he had taken millions and millions of dollars from people. It was like a cult. People would gather in this huge room and uh, kind of worship him. They would all do this laying on of hands ceremony where this crowd would ripple from the back to the front and, you know, send positive energy and light towards him. And the first thing I noticed when I opened the door uh, to my waiting room in Beverly Hills was his clothing. He had like Gucci pants, Prada sunglasses, um, some kind of fancy shoes. I mean, he was really dressed like he was going to be out, out on a photo shoot. And I knew in a second I had this creepy feeling of he's trying to impress me. He's like a chameleon. It's like the clothes make the man. He thinks that if I see all this beautiful clothing, I'm not going to see through to the heart 
of who he really is. So the clothing aspect doesn't surprise me. The idea of, I think you said um, 64% of people wandering around in the middle of the night in a college town being criminals of some sort. And the fact that with Koberger and Bundy, both these crimes took place in sorority houses. That just doesn't surprise me, this parallel, because women between the ages of 18 and 22 or 23, they're young, they're beautiful, they're out and about. They are readily available to the sociopath. The sociopath can walk up, talk to them, charm them, um, figure out where they live. And, and typically they have very low levels of security around them. And I could go on and on, but these these girls are like sitting ducks. And I think this is one of the most prominent similarities I see is in the victim selection and the profiling um, of, of the women that, that two of these two men murdered. Guys, we explore all of this in Parallels of Evil, which is running right now on Fox Nation. It was um, a Herculean effort. We all went to Idaho in the snow, in the cold, retraced Koberger's steps, visited the crime scene. Take a listen to Parallels of Evil, the Bundy in Idaho killing. Standing right here, I can see straight in the sliding glass doors, and I can see inside, and it's not even illuminated right now. This makes it very clear to me how easy it was to get to that downstairs sliding glass door. We've been asked many times, how close is this to campus? Well, there's a Sigma Chi house right there. I can see in their windows. Right behind that is a hill that we have been seeing people walking back and forth to classes. The campus water tower is right there. And all along this street in front of 1122 King, all day long and into the night, students with their backpacks have been going back and forth to classes and to campus. So this is a vantage point with a bird's eye view. I wonder if by the time this goes to a jury, if the jury is going to be brought here, if they're going to stand here just like I'm standing here, just like where I think Brian Koberger stood here at night in the cover of darkness looking in at the girls. It's a bird's eye view into their bedrooms. Everything we could think of to explore and investigate this case to Koberger's apartment, to his neighbors, to his school, everywhere we could think of that Koberger was, we went. Listen to this. We are off the pavement now. We're on a dirt top road, seemingly in the middle of nothing, following Koberger's route from the so-called murder house back to his apartment in Pullman. And as you can see, there is nothing, no lights, no homes, no businesses, as far as the eye can see. I just got out of this SUV and looked around. That knife could be anywhere. If you don't want to run into anybody, this is the place to be. It is pitch dark out there. You can't see a thing past 40 feet in front of your car. And there are a million places to hide a knife. You don't just fall onto this back road right here. You gotta know where you're going. Between two uh, 
snow drifts on either side. You got to know where you're going. To Bill Warner joining me, private investigator, you can find him at WBIPI.com. Bill, thank you for being with us. Bill, have you ever encountered a client, a defendant, a suspect who just oozed evil? Oh, of course not. But what I find most interesting, though, is uh, what John mentioned about uh, Bundy. Uh, during the trial in, in Tallahassee, Bundy never really would admit to his guilt. Even when he was offered a plea deal for 75 years in prison, he passed on it and went ahead with the trial. And of course, was found guilty and went to old Sparky. But I'm seeing sort of a parallel with uh, BK already. When he was arraigned recently, the judge asked for, you know, guilty, not guilty plea. He wouldn't talk. And the attorney for him, or two attorneys for him, didn't weigh in with a, you know, a non-guilty or guilty. The judge had to give the uh, not guilty plea. I, it looks to me like Kohlberger is trying to overtake his attorneys already. He's going to you know, make a show of this, uh, which, of course, Bundy did big time. Looking into both of these guys, Kohlberger, is he, does he want to be Bundy? I, I think he does. Kohlberger... To me, I, I see this this clone of Bundy. This is John Henry. Let me jump in here because it, there's been a lot of discussion about why uh, his attorney, Kohlberger's attorneys, asked the judge to enter a plea. And there's no insanity defense in Idaho, which is interesting because I thought it was constitutional under McGotten. But anyway, um, when I've tried, tried over 300 cases and been doing this for a long time, if I have a client that I think is incompetent, legally incompetent, I would not allow them to enter a plea. But I don't see that here at all. Well, wait a minute. John Henry Brown, I see what you're saying because mental incompetency, everybody different from insanity. Insanity, under the old McNaughton rule, which was brought to the U.S. from Great Britain, where we get our common law, is did you know right from wrong at the time of the incident? If you didn't, you're crazy. Incompetency means you can, you're, you're so out of it for whatever reason, you cannot assist your lawyers at trial. Now, this jurisdiction, Idaho, does have incompetency. If he can enter a plea and stand up and say not guilty, that indicates he can help his lawyer, which would, as John Henry Brown is pointing out, defeat an incompetency claim. That's very astute. Right. I think ethically, a defense lawyer can't allow his client to make a plea if the lawyer has reasonable belief that they may be incompetent. Now, it, it may be the only card to play in Idaho. It may be, but what they'll do is send him to a hospital and get him, quote, well, unquote, and then he'll face trial. Yes, exactly. stories with Nancy Grace. I want to follow up on something uh, to Audrey Conklin and Joe Scott Morgan. Joe Scott, first to you, Professor of Forensics, Jacksonville State University. Joe Scott, we're talking about how charming Bundy was. All right. Well, describe what he would do post-mortem after murdering his victims. Well, one of the things that he would do is he would he was actually 
somewhat of a necrophile, Nancy, uh, which means that he was intimate with the dead. Why do you talk like that? He had uh, sex with dead bodies <laughs> and dead body parts. That's what you're saying. Yeah, he did. That's and, not charming. Well, no, I, I don't think that it's charming at all, certainly. And I've seen cases like this uh, involving serial serial perpetrators in the past, uh, particularly when they get into areas like the posing of the dead, this kind of fantastical thing that they oh, get like into. Oh, like BTK. He was a freak. Yeah. Redress yeah, it, the victims, put makeup on them, uh, And he would actually go back and disinter the dead as well. And so, yeah, there's right. there's that kind of thread that runs through this. And it's almost like a continued destruction of the dead uh, to be able to manipulate them, play around with them, those sorts of things, which adds a completely different layer of horror uh, to all of this. And it really goes goes to how deeply sadistic he was. And, you know, one other uh, other fact about Bundy is that Bundy derived quite a bit of pleasure from a very specific thing, and that's uh, biting. Uh, he enjoyed biting his victims because he could actually experience uh, their discomfort and their pain as a result of driving his teeth, you know, for instance, into their backside, into their shoulders, into their back. And, of course, back then, uh, bite mark was still held in very high esteem, and it was actually used. Well, Bundy did have an unusual set of chompers. So he did. Unlike, he, he I did. always compare it to biting into jello. I don't put a lot of stock in forensic dentistry. No. But no, in Bundy's case, his teeth marks were so unusual that I think it can be trusted in Bundy's well, case. Uh, the, you know, the bite mark evidence is not a, really a persuasive. And, and it, has, it wasn't jello, Nancy, it was pigs that the odontologist had people bite into. Oh. Which I had some, had some fun with him at one point. It was Margaret Bowman that had the bite marks. Thank you, yeah. John Henry Brown, for telling me that. Yeah. And the other thing to keep in mind, one of the things that I find striking about Colbert and Bundy is that there was no sex involved in the death of the women at Cairo Omega. And there was no sex, as far as I know, as far as the no, situation. In it's not. You're right. And I talked to Ted about these things at length. He would more often than not not have sex with his victims, but there are times when he would. I guess he was more into having sex with them after they were dead and their body parts. What about it, Joe Scott? Uh, the fact, again, playing uh, with the dead, uh, you know, where you have this inanimate individual that they can manipulate. And you see it in a lot of these cases. You just look at Dahmer. You know, he wanted to create these kind of zombies that he could manipulate and do things with them. And otherwise, an uncontrolled life, perhaps. I don't know. I'm getting into Dr. Bethany's area. But suffice it to say that, uh, you know, it was uh, a depraved mind, certainly, in his particular case. And we see a lot of these. And that's one of the things that really goes to Koberger for me, Nancy, because he had access uh, to this particular dwelling. We don't think that at this point in time that there's any kind of sexual assault, but that doesn't mean that these were not a sexualized event. Um, and he could be living this stuff out in his mind. I've always been interested, very interested, since that apartment, since that home in Idaho was so easily accessible. Had he been in there before? Did he have a hide, perhaps, in one of those closets? Did they look for touch DNA? Did they look for old seminal stains in those closets? 
where he could sit there and observe individuals, perhaps the victims that he targeted, and watch everything they were doing without him, without them knowing that he was there. Joe, what about the stab wounds in their appearance? Where were they? Well, uh, the stab wounds are are through uh, over multiple surfaces from what we're understanding right now. And, of course, there's a lot of people that allege this is uh, people in academia that there is a close correlation between stabbing and sexualization of the dead. It's the thought of thrusting with a knife over and over and over. It's a penetrative event. And again, you're wreaking just incredible havoc. There's an awareness of it, too. There is an awareness, certainly, on one of the victims that we know of because she's got defensive wounds on her where she was aware that she was being stabbed. And I think you probably derive pleasure from that. Guys, I want to circle back to Audrey Conklin joining us, investigative crime reporter for Fox News Digital, who has been on the Koberger case from the get-go. Audrey, again, thank you for being with us. When in our special investigation, Parallels of Evil, where we go back to Idaho and retrace steps and visit every location that we can think of to shine light on the investigation, we began comparing Bundy and Koberger. Now, Audrey, did you hear us talking about how Bundy could be very charming and could blend in even with his own lawyer, John Henry Brown, who's with us right now. I'm thinking about Koberger and how he tried to insinuate himself in the victims' lives on social media. So he was stalking them long before they were murdered, based on what we've been told anyway. We don't know if the girls read it or not. But trying to insinuate himself in their lives, but he did not have the natural charm that Bundy had. He couldn't turn it on and turn it off. Listen. When I met his dad, he was like, um, he was talking to his dad outside first because his dad was out there. Brian must have been organizing the house of the apartment. Um, he was like, I want you to meet my son Brian. He has some trouble making friends sometimes. And then he, he came down and. Uh, He's a little odd, you know, but I'm kind of odd to some people, so I didn't think much of it. Remember how he almost, well, not almost, he did get thrown out of bars for walking up to women and trying to, I guess, flirt with him. And his opening line would be, hey, what's your home address? Yeah, well, that didn't work. The emails or the social media didn't work. So I wonder if he then escalated to spying on them in some manner, the way Joe Scott Morgan is describing. So what do you make of his just innate, unsophisticated, and somewhat of a stumbling, bumpkin approach to women, Audrey Conklin? Mm -hmm. That's a stark difference between the two. It is, and that's kind of the difference um, between a crime in the 1970s and today. We have social media is a huge part of it, right? And there's speculation that he followed the victims on social media. Um, They were in sororities, as we know. They had social media presences that were public. They had pretty pictures on Instagram and um, other accounts. So, yeah, they're their social lives were out there for him to see. And if he was not having luck with them online, because a lot of flirting takes place online or, or even just talking communication nowadays between college students. Um, he, you know, we know from the affidavit that he drove by the house um, before the crimes and after the, and after the murders. 
um, or allegedly, you know, his, his car was picked up in that area. So um, we know that there was um, a, specu- or a fascination there with the victim. And um, we also know that he was a PhD student studying criminology at a nearby university that was about a 10-minute drive away. To Dr. Bethany, what about the fact that was just brought out, Dr. Bethany, that neither Bundy nor Koberger had sex raped mm. these victims and I'm, I'm not talking about all the victims I'm talking about the Chi Omega victims and the Idaho victims I think that Koberger and Bundy were so perverse so depraved that normal penetration um, asking a girl out wooing them taking them to dinner courting them um, maybe eventually marrying or having sex these these normal um interactions between adults, they were too far gone. They were too far down the depravity scale. So the fact that that they didn't penetrate doesn't mean that it wasn't sexual in nature. Uh, it could be, as Joe Scott Morgan pointed out, what, as they were as a cobra or perhaps hanging out in the closet, um, watching these students masturbating to thoughts of them and not just thoughts of caressing them, having sex with them, penetrating them, but masturbating to the thoughts of plunging a knife into them, which as another panelist pointed out, is kind of a pseudo-sexual type of act. Um, plunging the knife, like plunging plunging the penis. And remember, Koberger, there was another victim where he took a suitcase out of her car, rummaged the items about, out, took a pair of underwear, and then stuffed it into a cup, cup holder, which I also, also thought was sort of a depraved pseudo-sexual act. And, you know, rage, anger, sadism, all kind of coalesce in the mind of a serial killer. So it could be that Koberger was stabbing the victims and then he was in a sexual frenzy, stopped to masturbate. You know, I I know it's hard to imagine all of that happening at once or masturbated on the way home. So we can't think of this as sex in the normal way. Many of these offenders have sexual uh, erectile insufficiency and can't do it anyway. That's part of their dilemma, which makes them, for some of them, crazy as they are. That is Del Carson speaking. John Henry Brown, quick question. As you have watched the Koberger case unfold, what memories has it brought back to you regarding your time with Ted Bundy? And how do you compare the two? I would like to say, Nancy, that, um, and everybody should know that Ted actually gave me a release of the attorney-client privilege. Otherwise, I would not be having this conversation, okay? Um, what's creepy is, you you remember, I'm sure, Nancy, you've seen the composite drawing done by witnesses at Sky Omega of the guy going up the stairs with a stick in his hand. And now anybody in the task force in Washington or Idaho, or Utah or Colorado, would immediately say that's Ted Bundy. But we didn't have social media back then. We didn't have communication between police authorities the way we do now. Because any of the task force members in this area or Colorado or um, Utah would say that's Ted Bundy. It would be solved immediately. Um, Because that's a strikingly similar uh, composite of Ted. Um, What I found is, you know, I think all I can say is that both incidents of and the ones we know about with Ted are the ones that are alleged against Scoberger are rage. And uh, being a sociopath is not being crazy. 
sociopaths don't always have to be criminals. I mean, sometimes they're, let's say, politicians. It, the rage is what the first thing I thought about when I heard about Kilberger was the rage and how the rage was similar to Ted's. And the, the reason for that, I don't know. They're, he was a sociopath. There's no question about it in my mind. Um, I don't know about Kohlberger. I'd be speculating at this point. But the rage is really scary. And I don't, you know, I, I wonder, I wonder whether the authorities are investigating the possibility of other homicides with Cobra. Yes, yes. Guys, we explored this and so much more in Parallels of Evil playing now on Fox Nation. I want to thank all of my guests that joined me today. And I'll see you again, ladies and gentlemen, in round two. Goodbye, friend. Thank you.